there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About ghost chairs. About clairvoyance. About pseudoscience. About coming back way hotter after being shit on in high school. A real Jenny Craig show intro. (laughs) It's a podcast about dreamers' eyes. Uh, About running a bed and breakfast. It's about the smell of roses. It's about dead people. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, I'm really excited. We are officially kicking off the ooky spooky season. All of October, I'm really excited for. We're doing a real Halloweeny roast. We are. We're not roasting. I mean, we probably will. We'll probably roast some books, but every single episode this month is going to be either about a scary romance novel or a creepy crawly short story. It's true. Morgan and I love the spooky season and romance really delivers. Yeah, I always feel that we're always coming up short. Like I saw on Instagram this listing of Halloween romance novels and I was like, where were these when I was Googling? I don't know. They like hide. And I think that's one of the things that this podcast has a real opportunity to showcase is romance's spooky side. Not like the implicit, you know, patriarchy, misogyny stuff that definitely comes up sometimes and is incredibly spooky. But like, you know, the on purpose dealing with the paranormal stuff. Right. I think paranormal is important. I would like to write Ryan Murphy a letter and be like, we don't have to deal with true crime during Halloween. You don't always have to make those episodes about real life murderers. They are among us 365. Halloween is a time for the mysterious. For the almost. The spine tingly. For the not quite. For the veil. For thin veils. Yeah. Like, it's time for headless horsemen, pumpkins, being cozy, feeling like that weird edge of creep, you know, where it's like, oh shit, is there somebody looking at me or is it literally the ghost Leonard who lives with me? I don't know. And now I'm curious to find out. You ready to get started? I am ready to get started. Do you actually have a ghost named Leonard? I don't know if his name is Leonard, but I definitely have a ghostly spirit who lives around. Lives not being the operative word, but like... Your house is definitely haunted. I wouldn't say haunted, just, you know, like... Is there a ghost in it? Yeah, but it's not a haunting. You know what I mean? Like a haunting has like an omnipresence and it's like mean. No, it doesn't. A haunting is just a ghost. I think we're just like neighbors. We just exist in the same space. He's like very chill. That's still a haunting. Is it? And he's chill for now. He's probably sussing you out. That seems right. I prefer that though. First of all, you can tell it's a masculine energy. And I I don't think that's because it's like all warmth and rainbows radiating off of him. It's just because he's like bad at putting stuff away. That's how I know it's masculine. That's all ghosts. (laughs) They don't have solid hands. You're semi-transparent. Like, 
like they really do a half-assed job like when you think about it like think how scary a ghost would be if they were like effective at like opening doors Mm -hmm. pretty terrifying (laughs) was it like this slow creak Mm. It was just like a regular open or a sudden bang, which is also like a thing that ghosts do denotes a certain amount of struggle involved in the execution. Yeah, that's not like that. So this week we are discussing Angie and the Ghostbuster by Teresa Gladden. Love swept six, four, four. That's right. It's a category romance. I don't think we've ever discussed a category romance on the show. I don't think we have either. I picked up this spooky little number at Love Sweet arrow in Tenley Park, suburb of Chicago. They sell used books there and I was really taken by the cover, which it turns out is a really accurate representation of what is inside the book. Super true. You want to read the back of the book for us, Isabel? (laughs) You know I do. Gabriel, his eyes made sizzling promises that his lips vowed to keep. Drawn to the old house by an intriguing letter and a shockingly vivid dream, Dr. Gabriel Richards came in search of a tormented ghost, but instead found a sassy blonde with dreamer's eyes who awakened old pain of his own. I resent the implication that ghosts can't be sassy blondes with dreamer's eyes. Fair, super fair. I appreciate that. Angie Parker was two parts angel, one part fixing, a sexy, <laughs> Skeptical single mom who suspected a con but couldn't deny the chemistry between them. And that's why cons work. That is why cons work. Or disguise her passionate fireworks, insatiable kisses, determined to court the irrepressible flirt who'd gotten under his skin. Gabriel pursued her with tender fierceness, wooing the sweet tigress who protected all those she loved, but who'd never known how it felt to be cherished. Together they struggled to believe the impossible, to free the anguished spirit that shadowed their happiness. Could a century-old mystery Reveal the powerful magic of love. I mean, it's pretty good. That's not bad. I would say Angie did know what it was like to feel cherished. Oh shit, that's something I want to talk about. That kind of gets into one of the topics I wanted to touch on, which was this is our first category romance. I had some assumptions about category romance, and this really surprised me in a lot of ways. To me, I always expected category romance to be the formulaic of the formulaic, kind of where not so great writers were relegated to. But I have to say, there was a lot about Angie and the Ghostbuster that went and truly surprised me as I was reading it. And one of the things that surprised me most was just the heroine. What surprised you about Angie? She smokes. <laughs> but only when she's nervous and she only allows herself three. But she smokes. We've never had a heroine who smoked. We have not. And she like smokes on the page. Mm-hmm. It's not like she's like always like stumbling in from the, you know, swinging the screen door or whatever. Mm-mm. Or stubbing something out in a Coke can. No. She's a smoker. And for 1993, I think you're right to say that that is both surprising and like a really pretty bold choice, especially because our hero is the one who's constantly like, you should quit that. She's a single mom, but in the most politically respectable way, she is a widow. But we find out over the course of the story that her first marriage was pretty unorthodox in that her (laughs) husband was significantly older than her. He passed away from old age, in fact. I love that you say significant and then you 
you don't say how significant. It was 40 years. He was 40 years her senior. He met her in an art gallery where she didn't get the job when she was 22. They were married two months later. So he's 62. She's 22. And they have a baby together. But she describes her marriage as like really happy and some of the best years of her life. And she shares this really prescient story for me about how she had gone to college, a good state school, and gotten a degree in art history and didn't realize that that wasn't nearly enough to get you a job in an art museum or a gallery where she wanted to work. And so she was feeling really beaten down after an interview, realizing she was essentially a podunk because she didn't have the same connections as the other applicants. I remember there being something about like her taste in paintings being considered quite boring and basic for the era. Yes, prosaic. Yeah. And so she feels a little out of sorts for that reason. And her husband, who's a big deal, he like was a professor and was a part of a prestigious think tank. They get married after two months. She has a happy marriage until he passes away. That was surprising. I've never read something like that. And then she returns to her very supportive and loving family. She starts her own business with her best friend that's successful, but really she's interested in settling down again because she's very happy as a housewife. There definitely is a lot of that 90s affectation of like, I'm a housewife and proud of it type thing, even though she's not. And she was only a housewife, I think, for like three years or something. But when you know, you know, you know, I mean, I've only been a podcaster for three years and I classify it as my profession, my calling, my only goal in life. Okay, (laughs) that's not true. Sure. But do you feel called to defend your podcast? professionalism to the death at like the mere drop of a hat because like that's what Angie does like that's like the most 90s thing about this book which I think is actually saying quite a lot and like I too was surprised by like the turns of this book but like that moment where like very unprompted she's like I love being a mother and I love having sandwiches when he comes home from school I'm like that's all I want and that's fine and I'm like well okay like you say that but you're also the silent partner in your best friend's business. You're helping your aunt run this B&B. Like you have a lot of stuff going on besides this thing about like being a fierce stay-at-home mom. So like, I don't know, that feels like inconsistent in the same way that I find many arguments from 1993 about that. It's just like, it feels wildly unnecessary. It kind of reminds me of the depiction of Phyllis Shafley in Mistress America where she's, no, it's Miss America. Mrs. America. Mrs. America. God, there's so many of them. So anyways, where she's always like campaigning for the right to not have to work and to be a stay-at-home mom. Meanwhile, she's always pursuing things outside of her home and has an entire fleet of staff to help fulfill the obligations of motherhood. And by the end of the book, her son is sent to boarding school. What is she going to do all day? Have another kid, I guess. Oh, yeah. That's an epilogue. That's an epilogue. Have another baby. Anyway. Yeah, the other thing I thought was really surprising about this book is that the heroine is older than the hero, Mm -hmm. which is really surprising. I haven't read that since Suddenly You. It's just not a move I was expecting in a category romance, but mostly it was the fact that the book was super generous to all of these otherwise unorthodox character traits in a romance novel. Mm -hmm. It never made a thing about the fact that she was older than the hero. never made a thing about the fact that her husband was 40 years older than her and that they were in love. Never made a thing about her smoking. You know, it isn't until you said that this author is so generous with her characters. And I was like, yes, 
Exactly. That was super surprising to me as well. And it reminded me in this exact moment of Debbie Maycomer. Like there's nothing actually in the plot that I find that surprising so much as like how deftly this author gives us details about these characters that, you know, become to finding like not only is Angie older than Gabriel, but she was super mean to him in high school and he had a really hard time. He sat behind her in their math class and she wasn't super mean to him. She ignored him. It was like other people were really mean to him. She ignored him. And then there was one particular moment where she gave him a stinging cut down when he had just worked up the courage to ask her to the dance and then he doesn't do it. She said he was so sweet or something. She says something sarcastic. Anyway, she feels really bad about it. That's the first two chapters where he has this niggling suspicion that he knows her and then he puts it together and then she puts it together. And then they're like, oh man. And I thought it was nice that she had this moment. She called him poor little boy. It was a hard scene. I didn't take it as sarcasm. The book does. What does the exact passage say? It was the last time he'd cornered her at her locker after school. All week long, he'd worked up the courage to ask her to go to the freshman spring dance with him. The speech he had painstakingly prepared had gone right out of his head the moment he was alone with her. He'd stammered and blushed four shades of red without getting to the point. To make matters worse, he'd tried to be a gentleman by helping her with her books, but had only succeeded in dropping one on her foot and slamming his finger in her locker. She'd called him poor little boy and had suggested he stop by the nurse's office to make sure his finger wasn't truly broken. He'd known then that Angie would never look upon him as a potential date or even as an equal. He'd walked away without even asking her to the dance. See, I read that as just like a 16-year-old girl using all of her powers of empathy around a 12-year-old who just, you know, probably embarrassed her and himself because he doesn't remember her as cruel or unfair. And she says she feels guilty for ignoring him, but she doesn't talk about, you know, not defending him when he was bullied because her son is now the subject of bullying. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's the ignoring and she didn't stand up for him. And she says to him, I wish I had been nicer to you. And he's like, you know, we can all let it go. We're all adults, which I thought was really sweet of him. Anyway, I think, yeah, she was embarrassed and like, you know, she could have done more, especially with her own popularity. And like, that's the thought that she has where she's like, I could have leveraged this better and I didn't because I didn't. There's this really interesting conflict throughout the novel. We haven't even gotten to the ghost part yet, but where Angie realizes that she's a bit of a fantasy for him mm-hmm. and doesn't want to be objectified in that way by him, which I also thought was like a very interesting idea to pick at and like a very specific to this coupling problem that I wasn't expecting that kind of creativity and nuance from a category romance. But of course that would be a concern, right? And of course she was as much as he protests it. And he's like, I think you're a wonderful mother. And it's like, oh, OK, you picked up on one new character trait about her. That you can protest that indicates your truest, most loving feelings. That's such an interesting problem to have is to like you reconnect with someone after years and years and years and you were always this object of like obvious desire to them. They remember you after all of these years and now they are handsome, accomplished, invited into your aunt's home. The book never explicitly says this, but it does feel like almost a power. And I think what she's really fearful of is not that she's 
she's not a whole person to him. I think it's the power struggle involved in objectification that she's concerned about. Yeah, and she's really concerned about it. Like, they're getting hot and heavy, and he says that, like, you're the dream. You're the dream girl I had in high school, and she stops them in the middle of what they're doing, and she's like, don't put me on that pedestal. And, you know, I'm not that fantasy. I'm not what I was when I was a teenager, and, like, I need you to be here with me in this flesh and blood human being. And I think, like, this book surfaced something that I often think romance doesn't do enough to wrestle with where it's like it's wish fulfillment it's fantasy it's all of those things but like what do you do when you're being objectified that way and like is it even pleasurable right and Angie finds that it's not and she says so right and the thing about Gabriel or Gabe as she calls him is that he sort of has an unfair advantage in that he is clairvoyant but the other thing about Gabriel that is so strange to me about this category romance because I nakedly and stupidly assumed most category romance heroes would be alphas and he is truly a beta. I'm like... What that did to showcase other kinds of fantasy fulfillment was really interesting to me, especially in the fact that, like, I don't think he was particularly clairvoyant. Like, he had some particular flashes of, like, premonitions or whatever. But mostly what the book is referring to is, like, he can sense, like, the rise and fall of her emotions. But that's just being a human being. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, it's not clairvoyance. But the book does sell it as, like... I know. The book is, like, he has this special ability to sense her and I'm like he's observant he's like watching her be upset and like responding to it appropriately but I mean that's probably the biggest fantasy that (laughs) permeates all romance which is the idea that a man is completely attentive to you emotional needs yeah I will push back I think on the idea that he's a beta okay because I think he's incredibly high-handed really yeah he comes into her house you know that she partially owns with her aunt so okay so we have to set it up so she lives in this B&B with her aunt that she helped pay for because it was her aunt's dream and she has so much money she's a very wealthy widow and successful businesswoman who just wants to be a housewife (laughs) and she helped her aunt buy by this B&B in their hometown and her aunt takes a nasty slip and fall and goes to the hospital. Unbeknownst to Angie, a couple of weeks before, her aunt had reached out to this pseudoscience, what do they call it? A paranormal expert. So, yeah, but they've got like some kind of like sciencey name for it and it's at like the University of South Carolina or something and uh, reaches out to this guy because there's a haunting in her house and she wants to help the ghost. Um, Angie has decided she's just going to close the B&B while her aunt's away because she never wanted to be in charge of a B&B. And in walks this guy. Mm-hmm. She's like, get out of here. I didn't invite you here. And he's like, why don't you let me stay the night? And then we'll go see your aunt in the morning and we'll see what she says. And he's like, I'm going to change her mind. And then as soon as he meets her son, he starts saying like, I understand your son. You've got to send him to boarding school. I wasn't happy until I went to a special boarding school. And then he's immediately like, you know what? Sometimes parents paranormal events are caused by children who are bullied. So just to be realistic, maybe your son is causing all of this phenomenon with his hormones. So maybe you should send him to a boarding school. She did not like that. Also the stuff with like, he says she has dreamers eyes. Yeah, he says that a lot. She never talks about having a dream. She's achieved everything she wants in her life. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm at a disadvantage to pull out examples because I don't have the book with me. Fair. 
there. I have the book. It's me. Uh, he works at the Institute of Parapsychology in Durham, North Carolina. He has a doctorate, but I'm pretty sure she's the one that insists he stay the first night and then they're going to go talk to Mrs. Rule, Ivy Rule, her aunt in the morning. Well, he's going to leave the house and then he has that experience with the ghost mm-hmm. where he just smells roses. Mm-hmm. And then he like can't move. Yeah. So he's going to leave. He's going to go get a hotel and he's like, what time do you want me to meet you tomorrow? And she's like, here at 10 o'clock. And then he's like, God, why does this woman seem so familiar? I totally want a banger. She's so beautiful. And then it occurs to him that she was the person in high school who sat in front of him in geometry. They have that whole scene. And then he's leaving. He's like, got his bag. He's going back to the car. He has the first ghostly experience where he smells roses and can't move, feels desperate. But the desperation isn't his. It's the ghosts. He goes to his car. He's like packing up. And then it's Miles, her son, who's like, are you Dr. Richards? And he's like, yeah, how do you know me? And the kid's like, oh, my great aunt and I wrote you the letter. I'm at a disadvantage to point out examples because I don't have the book, but I thought he was a total asshole. There were so many times when I like scoffed out loud at the things he said and did to Angie. I mean, I think that's fair. Maybe he's like a negging beta because like the reason why I call him not an alpha is because I guess his high handedness is so much softer than the high handedness I had expected. Right. I expected, I guess, like a Johanna Lindsay hero. Well, that's a big alpha. Yeah, I expected a big alpha. So when he shows up and she's like, no, you got to go. And then he like is going and then she feels bad and she invites him back in. That's how he gets there that first night. And like he's like constantly deferring to her. And part of that deference is because he can read her emotions, which is like whatever. But the other part of that, like the whole thing with the son, like he honestly thinks that he's trying to do Miles a solid and prevent him from being bullied because he knows that's that's something that she's worried about. And he apologizes when he upsets her. And I think that's like another move of a non-alpha. Like alphas don't immediately apologize. They like apologize halfway through and he's like apologizing from the beginning. Well, he lectures her about it to the point where she gets up and leaves the diner. Yeah, she does do that. I guess I don't associate betas with being assholes. Ah, mm. And he seems like a real asshole. And the other aspect of it is he always seemed to be pushing the flirtation before she did. Yes. Like he would always inject the situation with sexuality, even if it didn't call for it. Yes. Yes. He begins calling her pretty lady, which I absolutely abhorred. Yes. That was terrible. Under no circumstances is that something that I was down for. Another thing that surprised me is I did find it to be like a really satisfying read. There's the ghost storyline. There's the romance storyline. So it never goes crazy with the A plots and the B plots and the C plots. And it kind of moves along at like quite the little clip. It does. I want to talk about the ghost for a second because she's actually in the prologue. We're introduced to the shadow lady who's very beautiful, uh, wears Edwardian or Victorian high necked clothes, has the smell of roses all around her and cries in her ghost chair, cries in her ghost chair. And she appears to Aunt Ivy and she appears to Miles and Angie can't pick up on it at all. None of it. 
She doesn't have whatever it is that like touches people. But like we as the reader through the text of the novel get these like small paragraphs, small snippets in Julia, the ghost, the shadow lady in her perspective. And it's all in italics and it's always like, they have to understand. And it's like, it's desperate. And like, I think that's also one of the things about having the ghost passages in all italics is because like that slant makes it move faster in the reading for some reason, or just like the way it read for me. And, you know, the ghostly story is sad. I love a sad ghost story, though. So like I was I was definitely here for the shadow lady storyline. Spoiler alert. She gets murdered by her jealous, abusive husband and her ghost mission is to have her bones recovered to be buried next to her boyfriend who happened to be Angie's ancestor. Right. I mean, it's not only is she like murdered by her shitty husband. It's like she's also then like buried in the back of the yard and like nobody knows like the casket was closed. Like she was apparently like died of natural causes in Europe. Who died of natural causes in Europe? That was the story that he told her husband who killed her. Oh, okay. And I think what was really surprising and like upsetting is like how believable that was like as a storyline for a ghost where it's like, here's a vivacious young woman who is forced to marry some rich dude who like definitely 100% killed her, buried her out back and then puts out this story that she like died of typhoid in Austria. Yeah, it's mostly the husband and boyfriend who murders uh, the woman. In fact, I think after heart disease, the number one killer of women is men. (sighs) And so, you know, yeah, that's sad. That's a sad, terrible thing. I don't know what else there is to say about that. (laughs) Nothing. I think it's really interesting how we think about ghosts as a problem to be solved. And I think that really speaks to like our true incapacity to think about eternity. But what if eternity is just we're all ghosts? That's it. That's the afterlife. Isn't that horrifying? to think about like being stuck in one place but I like why are you stuck right because you're dead what if that's it what if every single person who dies ends up a ghost that's cool but like that's my big question like why do we conceive of ghosts being stuck near their bones we don't always consider them stuck near their bones right but I think like that's part of the solving like a haunting it's usually like a ghost has like unfinished living business that a living person needs to do right but that doesn't have anything to do with their remains sometimes Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. In this book, it does. Yeah. First of all, what if ghosts are real? Yep. What if they're not a problem to be solved? I've never heard an IRL story about someone helping a ghost to cross over. I've only heard people talk about hauntings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the appealing thing about a ghost as like a problem to be solved is either like a human need for control over the supernatural, like even if you conceive of the supernatural, even if it's just pure conception for you and it doesn't actually exist, you need to believe that you would have the ability to have some control over that idea. Or if it's merely the idea that we cannot conceive of an eternity in stasis. And so we have to conceive that if someone is in stasis for an eternity, that we have some capacity to intervene and solve the problem of a ghost. Unfinished business. Because think about like, doesn't 
doesn't everyone die with unfinished business? Who finishes all their business in a lifetime? I think the thing about the solving of the ghost rather than a different kind of haunting is that it's always around trauma. Sorry, what do you mean by another kind of haunting? Like that movie with Robert Downey Jr., Heart and Souls. It's a bonkers movie from the 80s. But I'm trying to think of like ghost stories where like the ghost didn't have like a traumatic ending, right? But like part of the problem of like the sixth sense and like why Haley Joel Osment has to like solve all of these things is because all of these ghosts have really traumatic deaths and that's part of the business of like moving them along. And like this book is like that. I'm just trying to think of a story about like encountering a ghost in stasis that isn't also then wrapped up in trauma. And I think like that's the thing that is strange to me about ghost stories and our conceiving of them as a conceit because it's not just that they need something solved. It's not like they want, you know, their buried $100,000 to go to their most beloved grandkid, right? Like those ghost stories don't seem to exist in the same sort of way that like I was murdered, please catch my killer or I was murdered, please recover my bones or, you know, that that kind of thing. And I wonder why it is that the trauma stasis dynamic is the animating factor of a solve. I think trauma is true. I don't think it has to be a traumatic death. I can think of quite a few hauntings that are the result of a traumatic life, but maybe not a traumatic death. The infield poltergeist famously is one that comes to mind, who the Catholic crusaders said was actually a demon animating a ghost. But he was a ghost. He was just an old man who died in his house and felt a great deal of possession over that house. I think there is something about like a traumatic life or like an unbalanced one, like too much attachment to something that's born. Like, you know how like a scar makes it hard to move your joint if you have internal scarred tissue? It's not necessarily like a real hindrance to your life. So you're suggesting that like the real idea of ghosts as a problem to be solved is really about people wanting to fix trauma. Yeah. The idea that a trauma could hold you back from eternity or like the idea that like the tragedy is not the stasis. It's the trauma that trapped you in the stasis. Wait, the what? The trauma isn't the stasis? It's the trauma that trapped you in the stasis. So you're suggesting that it's not like the ghosts aren't always reliving their trauma? I'm trying to think of examples where like that isn't the case between movies and books and like what I listen to. I'm like not a specialist, not an expert, like spooky things scare me a lot. So I avoid them. I am a person who likes a ghost story solved. Like that is a pleasure I have when they make it to the other side, like the end of ghost when Demi Moore says ditto buckets of tears. Well, I think that's the most important thing if we're going to talk about ghosts is to understand them as a story Mm -hmm. and not to think of them as like actual people. Because, I mean, there's no way you or I have that assurance of knowing. Right. But I mean, to like go back to your original question, it's like, what is it that drives us to have this narrative of ghosts that has to be solved? I guess like Jacob Marley isn't a ghost that needs a solve. Like he comes back from the other side to warn Ebenezer Scrooge. He's constantly living in his trauma. He is. And like, that's awful. He's like comes up from hell. Yeah. With all of his like trappings of hell, which hell would be an afterlife and being a ghost is not the same as being in the afterlife. Right. Until they come on to the mortal plane. Right. I mean, there are lots of ghost stories that don't have a solve mm-hmm. that are just like, and that ghost is there. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are super smart and we're talking about how like the trauma of a past experience lives on. 
you know, we're describing something really not literal in a really literal way. (laughs) And I think that might be part of how ghost stories manifest. Like I've been listening to a lot of lore because I like to be spooked in October. (laughs) You just said you didn't like to be spooked. I like it and I don't like it. That's why I like the sixth sense. That's how everyone feels. I know. That's why I'm listening to lore. And like a lot of those ghost stories, like they died young or the thing that happened was awful and inexplicable. And I think like this desire to create ghost stories, this idea to create a narrative about after death that is indeed like wrapped around a nugget of trauma is part of how these narratives are very old. And it's like interesting to read them in a category romance where it's like the A story is Angie and Gabriel getting together, but the B story is like a failed romance, right? Where this woman is murdered, which is not uncommon. And she wants to be with the man that she would have married if she'd had the choice. Which by the way, what if that guy doesn't want to be with her in the afterlife? What if they just created another ghost? Right? And like, what if he had a wife? And like, they just like, what do we do with the bones? He definitely did. He reproduced. Exactly. So then what are we doing with poor Luke's bones of wife? You know, like we just like, what do we even do with that? He's just the meat and the bone sandwich, the lady bone sandwich. He's like, I've never been happier. (laughs) It makes me want to become a ghost so I can just have this fix my ghostness. Mm. But yeah, why do we tell ghost stories? And I think it is. I think you're right. I think it's about the trauma because it's not always about the solve. There's not always a solve. Or the example of the infield poltergeist, right? The story behind him is just that he was a very angry old man who lived a very sad laborer's life and then just continued to be angry. And that was what kept him in this world. And, you know, and then they had a very sensitive little girl who was doing, we have to talk about adolescence and ghosts who like was manifesting him, whether or not you believe it's true. I think it's a really interesting story towards your point, Isabeau, because what's actually being worked through is this like repetition of a working class family with the wolf at the door, right? And now they've got this old man who just suffered that exact same thing his entire life. And now he's possessing their small daughter. I mean, that's, that's it. I think it is just a way we can talk about trauma and how it permeates and continues. Maybe ghosts are the monster of Halloween 20 20. We need to think about the fact that this trauma continues and lives on even after the story or whatever has ended. There's a continuation there, not just a continuation, a repetition. I think that's it. And like, that's where the agony of ghost stories comes in, right? Because like you talked about stasis and I'm like, why do I think of stasis as sad, right? Like there's nothing inherently sad about stasis. Angie loves stasis. All Angie wants to be is stasis. Exactly. But like, why is her stasis like acceptable in the ways that it is versus like the stasis of the shadow lady isn't like, why is that the tragedy? And like, I think you're right because it's not stasis, it's repetition. And if it's like repetition without consent where you're living like the worst kinds of your past always because you can't move past the trauma, right? Because you don't get to live anymore, right? Where you're just stuck in it. That is tragic. That is tragedy. Yeah, you can't get over it. This actually Actually, I did write down this quote on page 121, speaking from Angie's perspective. And I think it might speak to the tie between the story of Angie and the Ghostbuster and the story of the Shadow Lady, whose real name is Julia Rose. Julia Rose. What a 90s name for a ghost. No kidding. It says, she feared never feeling that 
soul deep love just as she feared dying alone. Mm-hmm. That's also so heavy and so true. Like, what are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of dying alone or are you more afraid of not feeling that soul deep love? And isn't that the way we get pulled in all these directions on our dating apps? It's something that comes up a lot with the elderly daters on first dates, actually. They always talk about this dichotomy and like pensioner dating where it's like some people are looking for that next great love of their life and some people are just looking for a friend, a companion for the end of their lives. But it's like everyone's experiencing that quandary all their lives, maybe. Mm -hmm. And apparently in their afterlives. And apparently in their afterlives. You know what? I bet Julia Rose gets buried next to Luke. Mm -hmm. Who definitely a hundred percent has a wife who's buried on the other side. She sees him in the afterlife and she's like, oh, you? Oh, this is, hey. Oh, because there is no way that guy is living up to a century of longing. No way. There is no way. Great, great, great grandpa Luke. Which is also another way in which this book is like fascinating because we have that reveal too where you have like that, you know, 12 year old Gabriel who's like worships. Angie. And then he meets her in real life when he's sexy, wearing his Cheetos and his like rolled up white shirt. And he's a doctor of parapsychology or whatever. And she's like, no, I'm I'm not the idol. I'm not the thing you dreamed of in your pubescence. And he's like, but everything else is what I dreamed of in my pubescence. <laughs> and now you're here. You're the cherry on top, Angie, you fierce goddess. You bake cinnamon rolls, but you don't wear them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Angie and the Ghostbuster has some of the best 90s fashion descriptions. Mm. Mm. This is something I expected from a category romance, which is specific outfits. And it delivers. It 100% delivered. It was like looking through a very old Victoria's Secret catalog in some ways. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the early aughts, late 90s Victoria's Secret, Vicky's catalogs. Oh, yeah. Like, God, I pictured it perfectly. I knew exactly what she was wearing. I'd seen a thousand of those catalogs. No matter what season it was, they were walking around in snow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh my God. Everything. Everything. And I love that she's kind of got this like alt edginess to her, Mm -hmm. to her dress. That's still very chic. Like you can tell she was a well-moneyed art history major. Mm -hmm. It's true because she was mixing her Victoria's Secret fashions with like Sundance or Chico's. You know what I mean? She had like some statement pieces as they're called. Speaking of the peak of sophistication, (laughs) I want to give a quick shout out to the recipes, (laughs) the meals discussion. Described in Angie and the Ghostbusters. Angie is like this like perfect domestic goddess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that includes being a very good cook. Mm-hmm. He describes one of her sumptuous dinners, our hero. Gabriel Richards. He describes one of her sumptuous dinners saying, sliced chicken breasts, sauteed and seasoned. <laughs> Mouthwatering. Oh my God. There's this line where she says, men weep at my table because of my cooking. And he's like, I bet that's not the only reason they're weeping. Probably from their penis tips too. Oink. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's like seasoned chicken. Sliced, (laughs) sauteed, seasoned in that order. (laughs) In case you didn't know, this book is very white. (laughs) Scrumptious. Yeah. 
All right. Weirdest part, sexiest part? Oh, yeah. I want to talk about my sexiest part first, because here's something I was absolutely expecting from a category romance in the 90s, and that was a fade to black in front of a fireplace. Mm. All the cozy woesies that you would ever need for this autumnal season are delivered via Angie and the Ghostbusters sex scenes. True story. So there's a fire and there's red wine. I mean, it's just like, what do you expect? Imagine everything you've always pictured and been shown your whole life about lovemaking, that's what happens. I don't think they actually have sex, but they do make out on the couch. They definitely make out on the couch. She falls asleep in his arms and also very 90s, like TV movie. He wakes up, she's all cuddled, like beautifully. Her hair is like all over him, like a beautiful mantle. I'm sure it's even described that way. And sitting cross-legged on the floor across from them in front of the now cold fireplace is... Oh no, I forgot about this part. The child, Miles, with his B-spectacle face. He's basically like Macaulay Culkin. And he goes, huh, you cuddling my mama? Are you my daddy now? Yeah, that's like exactly what he says. This brings me to my weirdest part of the book, which is exactly that. (laughs) Miles is so horny for a dad. dad. Just the worst. Third tragedy of the book isn't the dead woman in the backyard. It's fucking Miles. It's like, dude, as soon as he marries your mom, he's shipping you off to a boarding (laughs) school. He's told us about it. We know. So he could get her pregnant with his own baby. He doesn't care about you, dude. Second best, least loved. Hey, you know I'm never gonna replace your spot with your mom. I'm just her friend. You're her special guy. I packed your bags. Now you're going to go to that special school. Going to go to a special school. Same one I went to. You can talk about all the bugs you like, kiddo. I turned out really cool and (laughs) well-adjusted. Just ask your mom about all the weird sex jokes I made to her once I figured out she was someone I masturbated to when I was in middle school. Don't worry. It's super chill. I really like cinnamon buns. I love cinnamon buns. I love fucking your mom, who was my high school dream girl and I know nothing about. And I love sending you to boarding school. (laughs) Bye. Yeah, Miles is also my weirdest part. Although close running with her describing the happiest years of her life being married to a man 40 years older than her who picked her up while she was crying as a vulnerable 22 year old in an art gallery. Mm. Didn't love that. Did not. But Miles is truly a weird child. And I was picturing him like Macaulay Culkin from um, My Girl. So I also imagine that he would die by bees. He was fragile. (laughs) Sometimes I think about the many medical maladies my lover was born with. And if I ever feel like he's out of my league, I just remember if this was 200 years ago, he would have been dead by now. Mm. And I'd still be kicking. It's true. And people would be super interested in my Zaftung bod. And my palest skin. You look so healthy. Can you digest dairy? Pretty well. (laughs) Is the honest answer to that question. Let's get a farm upstate. Wait, 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 wait. Like, do you mean cow dairy? That's right. (laughs) I'm pretty good at digesting dairy from the biggest thing we milk. (laughs) I'm dying. (laughs) Sheep's milk? It's like it never even happened. It might as well be an apple to me. My incredible guts. Goat's milk? (laughs) Don't mind if I do. What else he got for me? (laughs) Motherfucker, I drank the milk of an oat. This is assuming I time traveled. I've drank the milk of an oat. You don't know my life, man. (laughs) 
my body is a wonderland. I'm <laughs> trademarking that right now. TM. TM. You don't know what a wonderland is yet, but... <laughs> People are going to owe me some money. 700 years from now, <laughs> a douchebag, not unlike yourself, sir, will owe me some money. Anyway, I don't know why you traveled 700 years back in the past. That doesn't seem like a good time. It wasn't the best choice. I really was hung up on my ability to digest dairy, and I didn't realize that they would understand it as witchcraft immediately. Only if you were in a certain latitude would they understand it as witchcraft slash superpower. If you were in other latitudes, they'd be like, yeah, that's right. Sister Morgan pooped mere hours after drinking all that milk. Healthy. I want those genes on my farm. Clearly she's made a pact with the devil himself. Uh, God. The end of the witch, the devil does ask her if she likes butter. Maybe it was about digestion, not about like providing her with luxury, but being like, no longer a problem, sis. All the butter you want. None of the farts. None of the farts. Wow, that took such a weird turn. But I think we made our point. Miles is weird. Miles is so weird and fragile, as you say. Definitely lactose intolerant. Can I actually, my weirdest part, Mm -hmm. just to take all the space in the room, my weirdest part is probably that I was never satisfied by Gabriel saying, I love you for the woman you are now. It's like very much a case of telling and not showing. Like he keeps making the speech, but then he's like, you're a bad mom. Send your kid to boarding school or like, oh, these cinnamon rolls are delicious. Doesn't feel like a sufficient acknowledgement of her womanhood. Mm -hmm. That's also a weirdest part. Yeah, I think the functionality of him being quote unquote clairvoyant, which is really just to say observant, the text decided that that did the work of him doing the work. Like, because he understood her at this level. And I agree, like, that was one of my weirdest parts where it's like, I don't understand why we have to understand this as clairvoyance when this is, like, meager understanding. Basic human empathy. Yeah, basic human empathy. It's because men only have to reach for that bottom rung on the ladder and everyone claps. I guess. I hated that. My sexiest part was... One of the things that I really liked about this book is the anticipation build. So, like, my sexiest part is sort of, like, it's kind of a cheat because it isn't one part in particular but it's like she always gets real close and then she's like no 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 not tonight and he's like yeah that's cool I got this like hard on I got this woody but I'll take it back to my own room don't worry about it babe don't worry about it pretty lady and I like loved that I did I honestly loved the power dynamic where she's just like I want you but not enough right now. And like, I don't want to get into like whatever that means about me in my headspace right now, but like, I loved it. Well, I think that's like, it was so structurally well done. It never felt like over the top or like, oh, again, we're going to do, do a cock tease. And you really get the sense of like, I totally understood how someone could read three of those a week. Oh, totally. These are like candy, but like a kind of candy that you, you look forward to. Yeah. Think about like a time before, you know, Netflix, which we love lived in but feels so hard to remember like your daytime television shows like the soaps maybe took up like two or three hours of your day if you were watching a lot of them daytime talk shows like you couldn't watch more than one at once and they all aired at the same time it doesn't actually take that long to clean a house once you get good at it and you do it every single day it doesn't take that long to you know and so these category romances were a way of filling that void for entertainment and comfort during the long 
long hours when your kids are at school, when Angie's were at home. And it's really clear to me, having read one, how it worked. I think people in Romance Landia brag a lot about their consumption, their book consumption, which we don't get to do because we're reading for a podcast. I think that's why I don't read as fast as other people. But, you know, if you were reading category romances in the same amount that you were like reading these modern romances, gosh, you could clear them. Jeez Louise. One a day. Oh, easily. And like, especially good ones. And like, I can see how you would look forward to your stable of authors. Like, especially because like, there's this thing in the paratext where like, you can send out an entry form to like, get your next two free and like, sign up for your monthly book subscription. And enter a raffle for a romantic getaway. Totally. And like, you get six books a month, which is like, a lot. But like, the kind of consumption of this book and like, something that I want to think about in terms of pulp right you know we talk about pulp books sometimes and like this is like this book is going to be pulped but the thing that I loved about this is like it really reminded me of what it felt like to look forward to like a Disney Channel original movie where it's like if you only had like a favorite author and you read the others because like they came in your thing and like you had the subscription so you read them because you had the hour and a half but like you were really looking forward to the Teresa Gladden and you like really looked forward to her once a quarter it was like that with Disney Channel original movies where it's like I would watch the ones that I didn't like but man when they had ones that I loved or they're like month of bad boys that they have advertised at the end of the love swept they were gonna do a month of book releases that all centered on a specific trope like how exciting that would be if you were super into bad boys right like that would be your month and like you had to wade through second chance to get the thing that you actually wanted yeah yeah and like just the idea of like that's a way of selling a specific trope, publishing a lot of a specific trope as a way of boosting sales and getting new subscribers. It's what podcasts do. Tune into our new Jane Eyre series. So here's actually a big question. Is it a womance or a nomance? This is a womance for me. I would 100% recommend this for other people who are looking for spooky romances. Gabriel's not my favorite. And frankly, like Angie's not my favorite either. But like there's enough in here that's like fun and worthwhile that I think is like a spooky romance. Definitely. Womance. Yeah. The ghost story delivers. The love story works out. I really loved Angie. I loved her so much as a heroine. I feel like she really dug into my mind with her cigarettes and her slouchy black clothes and leggings like even though it's politically like for me like her real defiance in her life choices and feeling scrappy about them yeah and being willing to storm out of a diner when a guy gets high-handed with her about her child rearing Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting yeah she seemed like a really whole rich person in a way that I don't think heroines are as often as heroes are yes Angie was not a stand-in. Yeah, I would say this is definitely a surprise romance for me. Four out of five ghouls. (laughs) Four out of five ghouls would recommend. All right, with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. 
they're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.